Section 20 of the Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jenks. Section 20. The Siege of Rhodes, 1522. Just to the southward of Asia Minor, in the Mediterranean, is a chain of large islands extending southwestward into the Mediterranean Sea. The largest of these is the island of Crete, then come two smaller islands nearer the shore, and finally the island of Rhodes, just about 45 miles long and half as broad, lying nearest the coast of Asia Minor. As it possesses two fine harbours on the eastward side, and lies at the mouth of the Aegean Sea, right in the path of ships on voyages from Turkey and Greece to the east, and as, in the old days, this was one of the greatest trade routes, constantly full of shipping, the island of Rhodes has always been a most important naval station and trade mart. The climate is fine and sunshiny, the land is fertile, and the island has always been populous, and occasionally a bone of contention between rival nations. Either across or at the side of one of its harbours stood the great Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the world. This stood until a little more than two centuries before Christ, when an earthquake caused its fall and destruction leaving great brazen fragments lying upon the shore in the waters of the harbour until 656 A.D., when the Saracens, having taken the city, sold the old metal to an eastern dealer, who loaded a train of 900 camels in order to convey the broken pieces from the desert. The city has had many sieges. Demetrius Poliocetes whose second name means city-taker, failed to keep up his reputation here, for though in 304 BC he succeeded in making breaches in the walls, his men were driven away. In 42 BC, the great Roman, Cassius, took the place and plundered it. In the Middle Ages, just at the beginning of the 14th century, the island, which was then in the possession of the Greek Emperor Emmanuel, ruler of Constantinople, was granted to the Knights of St. John, or the Knights Hospitalers. The story of these knights is one of the most romantic in history, but would fill many volumes. The order began in 1023, when a little hospital was established in Jerusalem for the benefit of pilgrims to the Holy City. After the Crusaders had taken Jerusalem, their wounded were cared for by the attendants of this little charity, and this caused the hospitalers to be renowned and favoured throughout Christendom. Large sums were sent for their support, and rich men, dying, left money and lands for their benefit. The order grew so rich, and its property was so widespread, that officers had to be appointed all over Europe to take care of the great estates belonging to the society. Their great rivals were the Knights Templars, with whom they at times came even to open battle. 
While Rhodes was in their keeping, the city of Smyrna, which they had conquered and held as an outpost, was taken by the Tartar leader, Timur, in 1401. But the knights, when he had withdrawn his hordes, still remained in possession of Rhodes. There was a great wall about the city, which stood at the northeast extremity of the island. Within the walls was their church of St. John, the palace of their grand master, which was really the citadel of the fortress, and also the separate quarters of the town set apart to the knights of different nations, for each country had its branch of the order. In 1480, Mohammed II came with an enormous force against the island and besieged it by land and sea with heavy artillery, for Mohammed possessed enormous cannon and very skilful artillerymen. But, although the siege was vigorously pressed, the inhabitants had maintained their fame for bravery and skill in fight, and the Turks were compelled to give up the siege and retire, which added greatly to the fame of the stronghold and to that of the order who held it. In the year 1522 there came an election to fill the office of Grand Master of the Order, and after some fierce rivalry, a French knight, Villiers de Lisle Adam, was elected, defeating another prominent knight named Damiral. At this time, the Turks were still warring against the Christians in the east, and after a long siege, had just succeeded in capturing the noted city Belgrade, one of the strongest and best fortified of Serbia, and the knights had every reason to expect that the successful Turkish general would soon bring his forces against them. It was partly for this reason that they had been so deeply interested in the selection of the Grand Master. Lyle Adam, aware that he might have to provide for the defence of the island against the conqueror of Belgrade, Solomon II, sailed at once from France for Rhodes. His voyage was most adventurous. At first his ship caught fire, and the flames were extinguished only after the most desperate efforts of his crew. A terrible thunderstorm overtook them shortly afterward, and the ship was struck by lightning, killing nine of the crew and melting Lyle's sword as it hung at his side, but without injuring the Grand Master. It was still the custom to coast along the shores, and it was fortunate that the Master of the Order did so, for he was told at one of the ports that the noted pirate Kurtoglu was cruising about in the hope of capturing him before he could reach the island. By sailing at night instead of by day, the pirate was eluded, and Lyle landed safely in the harbour of Rhodes and set himself at once to prepare for the coming of the Turks. It is said that the father of Solomon II, addressing his son from his deathbed, had declared to him, You will be a great and powerful monarch, provided you take Belgrade and drive the knights from Rhodes. Probably this was known, for though Solomon sent messages to the knights, promising them friendship and offering to cultivate their favour, Lyle Adam sent no reply except to call the attention of the Turks to the fact that they had put in command of the Turkish fleet the pirate Kurtoglu, who, after the failure of his attempt to seize the Grand Master, 
had been defeated by a ship of the Rhodians and forced to give up some of his plunder. Still the Sultan, Solomon, pretended to be friendly and humbly desired that an ambassador might be sent to him to represent the island. But Lyle Adin refused, knowing too well what would be done to the ambassador. His good sense was proved shortly afterward when he learnt that the Turks had captured a Rhodian sailor and by torturing him had extracted all the information that he could give about the defences of the island. In order to strengthen themselves as much as possible, the knights dispatched swift ships to Europe and sent messages begging help from France, Germany and other countries. But at this time, European wars kept all the monarchs busy and the only help that came to the knights was the arrival of 500 Cretans, archers with the crossbow and most famed for their skill. In addition to these, there came in the same vessel a certain Venetian engineer, Gabriel Martinigo, known throughout Christendom for his skill in fortification and military matters. Hardly had he become acquainted with them than his admiration for the knights led Martinigo to ask to become one of the order. He was eagerly welcomed to their number and at once appointed to high office and given full charge of the preparations to resist the Turks' attack. With the eye of a master he examined the ramparts, he built new works at what he considered the weaker points, made openings for guns to sweep positions that needed defence, and dug great mines under such parts of the wall as seemed to invite assault by the Turks. Not only did he strengthen the outer fortifications, but caused strong barricades to be built here and there in the streets of the town, so that even if the walls could be taken, the defence of the place might be kept up as long as possible. When this engineer declared all was ready, the garrison were ordered to parade in the public square and all sworn to defend the city to the last. To make sure that their garrison was supplied with arms, each soldier also made oath that his equipment was his own and would be ready when needed. The next question was as to ammunition and supplies. Several of the leaders, one of them being Damiral, who had been defeated in his attempts to be elected Grand Master, were sent out to find exactly how much powder and shot and what supplies the knights could rely upon and they assured the Grand Master that both food and ammunition were ample for their needs. All was now ready for the Turks' attack. But Damiral and some of the knights who favoured him asked permission to make a brief visit to a neighbouring island on some business of their own. Naturally, the Grand Master refused, whereupon the rebellious knights seized a vessel and set sail secretly. In spite of their dangerous position, Lyle Adam showed the true qualities of a leader, for, calling a meeting of his knights, he at once demanded the expulsion and disgrace of these men who had deserted their posts at a time when the greatest dangers threatened. He was loyally supported and the vote was passed. This had the effect of shaming Damiral and his followers, who returned and upon their knees begged the Grand Master's forgiveness. There was no further sign of disloyalty. 
The numbers of knights themselves was about 600. Of soldiers, or men-at-arms, some 4,500, with enough volunteers from the town, sailors from the vessels, and peasants from the country round about, to bring up the total to six or seven thousand men. All these soldiers and labourers were carefully trained, assigned to the different towers and points of danger, while four bodies of knights were held in reserve, so that they might lend aid wherever it was from time to time needed. Lyle Adam himself retained a small bodyguard like a staff of officers, and took direction of the entire defence. As soon as it was learned from spies and fugitives that the Turks were actually arraying their forces, a grand service was held in the Church of St. John under the direction of two archbishops, and the church was filled with knights in their sombre robes marked with the white Maltese cross and with the sturdy men-at-arms, while the prelates prayed for the success of the Christians against the infidels. The force of the Turks is believed to have consisted of about 200,000 men, and their naval force included between five and 700 galleys, according to various accounts. On June the 26th, 1522, just as the knights and inhabitants were celebrating the octave of the Feast of St. John by a grand procession, a cry arose from one of the outposts on a lofty hill that the Turkish fleet was in sight. Despite the approach of the dreaded enemy, the Grand Master sternly forbade the knights to change the day's proceedings, and as the infidels came stealing toward the city, the knights marched in their procession toward the Church of St. John, and there held services as if in times of peace. This religious office being performed, the men ran to their stations, the great gates of the city were shut and barricaded, the bridges across the deep ditches were raised, and from all the towers the banners of the Knights of St. John were flung out in defiance of the foe. Along the lofty walls gathered soldiers and citizens to look down upon the great galleys of their enemies, and it is well said by Porter, the historian of the Knights, that among that throng there must have been many an old man who remembered well the great siege of forty-two years before, when the Turks had come as eagerly, only to meet with a shameful repulse. If they recalled their victory with pride, yet they could not help seeing that this attack was to be in every way more difficult to meet. Solomon was a noted general, and up to this time had never been defeated. His success in taking the city of Belgrade was still fresh in men's minds. There was little to give courage to the brave soldiers on the walls as they watched the arrival and disembarkation of the Turkish forces. At night, however, there came a crumb of comfort. A deserter had escaped by swimming from one of the Turkish vessels, and on being brought before the Grand Master, he declared that there was great disaffection in the fleet. He said that the Turks, too, remembered the disastrous siege in the last generation, and that they feared to attack a city so strongly defended by men whose bravery and devotion was known throughout the world. But there was no sign of slackness in the besiegers' way of going about their work. With the Turks were some fifty or sixty thousand peasants and labourers 
who had been brought to do the heavy work against the fortifications. These men were set at once to digging trenches and erecting ramparts, placing the Turks' cannon where they would best command the city walls and putting up shelters for the Turkish soldiers. At first the knights now and then sent out strong forces to make attacks upon these labourers, but they soon saw that the Turks cared little how many of these poor peasants were slain. They made no attempt to protect them, and simply sent new men to take the places of those that had fallen. Meanwhile, though the forces sent out from the town were generally successful, now and then they lost a few men, and this they could not afford, since the Turks had twenty men to their one, without counting the labourers who were digging the trenches. When the Turks had their guns in position, a heavy cannonade began, and was continued for days at a time, without doing any great damage to the strong fortifications. As the knights were still well provisioned, and there was no sign that the walls would give way, they were content to sit within, simply remaining on guard, and to allow the Turks to hurl cannonballs into the town. This went on until the Sultan, who had not yet come before Rhodes, became impatient and arrived with reinforcements, determined to push the siege vigorously. The only incident of this early part of the siege that is interesting is the discovery of a plot to burn the city. A certain Turkish woman, a slave, had formed a conspiracy with other Turkish slaves to set fire to Rhodes in several places at once, hoping either to destroy it or to aid her countrymen by the confusion to make an assault upon the walls. Fortunately for the knights, one of the women revealed the plot. The poor slaves were subjected to tortures and confessed, with the exception of the ringleader, who died in silence. She was barbarously cut into pieces, and her body shone upon the ramparts to convince the Turks that the plot had failed. Undoubtedly it was necessary to let the besiegers know that this plot was discovered, for there were plenty of signs that somebody within the city was giving information to the Turkish generals. One sign of the accurate information given to the Turks was their directing the fire of their guns upon the bell tower, which stood on a lofty place in the city. This was used as a watchtower for the Knights of St. John, and from it they could observe and prepare against the Turkish attacks. But hardly had they organised this service when the heavy fire of Turkish guns was turned upon their watchtower. It was battered to pieces and fell. Although the Rhodians served their artillery well, they could not do much damage to the Turkish earthworks, and, as has been said, they could not afford to make attacks upon the besiegers, since the losses more than offset any success they gained. When the tower had fallen and they had ceased to take prisoners by sorties, the knights found themselves without information as to the Turks' proceedings. So certain Rhodian sailors volunteered to dress themselves as Turks and to make an expedition in search of information. There was no great danger of detection, since men were chosen who could speak the Turkish language. Stealing out of the harbour in a light boat, these sailors coasted cautiously along until they succeeded in capturing and bringing back to the town two unfortunate Muslims. These prisoners were taken to the top of one of the highest towers 
and told that if they should show any hesitation in telling all they knew, they would at once be hurled from the battlements. Under this persuasion, the men only too eagerly gave an account of all Solomon's forces, and even a list of his artillery. From their account, we can see that the Turks were well supplied with cannon, ranging from six brass guns of about ten inches calibre to a dozen brass mortars meant to discharge, what was entirely new in those days, hollow brass balls filled with artificial fire. These are said to be the first explosive shells ever fired from cannon. But the seventy or eighty cannon had so far done but little execution, and the shells had failed so entirely that only eight of them were used. When the Sultan himself arrived, he saw at once that to do any damage to the town, his artillery must be brought nearer and raised higher. Consequently, the Turks promptly began the construction of two great mounds, or cavaliers, as they were then called, at two different points of attack. These mounds were built of bags filled with earth strengthened with timber, and were only completed after the knights had slain many of the Turkish forces. When the guns had thus been raised, they became more effective, and one of the projecting bastions upon the works, one that covered an older wall, was battered to pieces. But the triumph of the Turks was short, for the old rampart behind the new wall resisted them. The Turkish fire, however, had become so destructive that after several weeks of bombarding, the wall had given way in a number of places. But no sooner was a breach formed than the Turks would discover, behind that they had battered down, a new wall guarded by a deep ditch. The Turkish Sultan, finding his artillery too weak to destroy the walls fast enough, now set his men at work to dig below the walls for the purpose of undermining them. The Venetian engineer, Martinigo, did his best to discover the Turkish mines, using for the purpose the stretched head of a drum, which he placed upon the ground as a sounding board, just as the old copper worker used the brazen shield. Though some of the mines were discovered, one of them was completed, and when its supports were burned, a great part of the bastion known as St. Mary's fell in, leaving a wide breach. But here came, to repulse the attack that followed the falling of the wall, the Grand Master and his bodies of knights held in reserve. The Turkish hordes ran into the opening, only to be hewed down by the powerful knights in armour, and although the Turkish general urged his men to the attack, and mercilessly cut down those that retreated, and although the attack was again and again renewed, the Turks could not force their way into the city. Such assaults were repeated again and again as new breaches were made in the walls. But no sooner was a Turkish attack ready than alarm bells would ring out in the city, and the garrison, armed with swords, small arms, Greek fire, boiling pitch, and even heavy stones, would charge so boldly against the Turkish columns that they were always repulsed. Even at one time, when a general assault was made by the Turkish forces against every part of the wall simultaneously, the small garrison fought so bravely as to drive back the Turkish warriors 
even after they had gained a footing on top of the walls. This last grand assault was watched by the Sultan in person from the top of a lofty scaffolding upon which he had established his throne, and in his anger over the defeat of this grand effort, he caused several of his generals to be put to death and to punish the pirate, Curtoglu, for having failed to send his forces in a naval attack at the moment of the grand assault. The Sultan caused him to be stretched out upon the deck of his galley, bastinadoed, that is, cruelly whipped on the soles of his feet, and then degraded from his command and expelled from the navy. So much gunpowder had been burned on both sides that the supplies began to fail. The Turks sent their ships for more, but the knights could not renew their supply. They found some saltpetre within the town and manufactured what gunpowder they could. It may be that the shortness of ammunition came about because of the mines that had used so great a quantity, but it was believed by many in the town that Damiral and the others who had reported before the siege that there was powder in plenty had been treacherous. Fear of treachery is always common in long sieges, but here it was confirmed when a Jewish physician was caught shooting a message tied to an arrow into the Turkish camp. His guilt having been proved, he was put to death, and not long afterward, Demiral's servant, caught on the walls at a lonely place with a bow in his hand, was accused of the same treachery, and when tortured, claimed that his master had sent messages to the Turks. On this testimony, and that of a priest, who had claimed to have seen a message sent, but had certainly never told of it before, Damiral was executed, though probably innocent. Learning of the distress in the town, the Sultan pressed the attack most vigorously, and as breaches were wider and defenders fewer, the danger of capture daily increased. At length, the Turks succeeded in keeping possession of the top of the wall in two places, still without being able to force a way into the town. The Sultan had lost 10,000 soldiers each month for half a year, and fearing help would come from Europe, he now sent letters, by arrow mail, inviting a surrender. The Grand Master refused even to treat with the Sultan, and threatened to put to death any messenger who should enter the town. It was the wish of the Knights of St. John, to perish in the ruins rather than surrender. But the townspeople besought the knights to make terms while it was possible to save the women and children. The Venetian engineer, Martinigo, was forced when questioned to confess that the town could not be held since they had not men enough to repair the walls, nor had they enough artillery to defend the breaches that had been made. The Grand Master, seeing that he would no longer be supported by the townspeople, then tried to secure from the Sultan the right to march out carrying their property, five years' exemption from payment of taxes, and an agreement that the churches should not be profaned nor the town pillaged. The Turks agreed, but before the matter was finally settled, a fight broke out between the Rhodians and the Turks that caused a renewal of hostilities. There was one more grand assault at a place where the walls had been broken and a new wall built within. 
The first day of fighting at this point resulted in the defeat of the besiegers, but next day the breach was taken and held by the Turkish troops. Once more the townspeople insisted that peace should be made before it was too late to save their lives, and the Sultan generously offered the same terms as before, which this time were accepted. All those who chose to leave the island of Rhodes were allowed twelve days to do so. As for the knights, they set sail for the island of Malta, where they were received rather as conquerors than as a defeated garrison, for, as was said by Charles V, when he heard the news of the capitulation, nothing in the world has been so honourably lost as Rhodes. In taking the island, the Turks had lost a 103,000 men in 22 battles, the knights 703 of their number. But the chief lesson to be learned from this siege is the fact that artillery had not yet become strong enough to destroy well-built fortifications, and thus the story of the siege of Rhodes forms a good introduction to sieges of modern times, where the whole nature of defences has been changed to meet the heavy fire of the great cannon. End of chapter 20